I'm Carrie Ann. And I'm Allison, and this is Podcast Without an Audience. Where two friends pick two topics and find intersections. Or not. The intersection today is that <laughs> we are both queer and recording in a closet where we both spent the majority of our childhoods <laughs> and early adulthood. It's a, it's a vibe. Is it a vibe? It might be a vibe. There's it, a window in here, so that's cool. It could, it could be... I mean, honestly, like, the the bed, is the bed better or the bed worse? I don't know. But, I mean, so here we are. Pros and cons of the bed. Uh, pro, you can put your feet under it. Yes. Con. Our feet fell asleep, which will, I'm sure, happen again. <laughs> so, you guys know from last week that I moved. So, you know, we, we don't know whether the audio is going to match up quite the same. We're doing our best out here, folks. We sure are. And uh, we'll we'll have a home here in the next little while. Moving is stressful. You know, you just moved, too. I just moved, and I we've both moved a lot. I know. So this is your last move for a while, and I'm, I'm so excited for you. That's Thank amazing. You. Thank you. I, I couldn't find, like, did I tell you this? I didn't know which box I put my bras in. Oh, no. Like my good, like my bras I go to work in. Right. And so I was in sports bras at work, just feeling very squished and vulnerable <laughs> for a full five days. And I had to give this presentation, and I was so self-conscious about my boobs the whole time. <laughs> That's the worst, I man. I know. But I found them. They're up there in that basket right behind you. Oh, good. Yeah. I'm going to need a good bra recommendation. I uh, just got a new set of bras, and they're already, like, falling apart Are on they me. falling apart? Where did I get mine? Somewhere in Friendly Center. Oh, okay. L- Lane Bryant? Is that a thing? For sure it is. Yeah. I don't know that my boobs are big enough for Lane Bryant. You don't think so? I don't know. I haven't looked at your boobs in a while. but they That's seem, disappointing. They seem like... We're a- in a closet, Allison. <laughs> <laughs> They seem of like a like a they seem deserving of a bra at Lane Bryan. You know, I feel like they are. You've given me motivation. I'll have to do that. Stand up for yourself. Thank you. Advocate for yourself and your boobies. Save the boobs. All right. So for those of you who this is the first episode you've ever listened to, where you been? Hey. Welcome. Where you you been? We're glad to have you. We're a psychology and history podcast. I feel like we don't talk about that enough in our intro. Well, see, I do psychology and you do history. Yes. And sometimes those things overlap or intersect. Or some might say intersect. Mm -hmm. And that's what we're here to talk about. And so, Carrie Ann, let's kick it off this evening. What is our psychology topic for this week? Well, um, I'm going to... Actually, you might be able to guess this one. So I'm going to um, start off with a little quiz. You always quiz me and I always get it wrong. Should I stop quizzing you? No, I mean, don't stop. But (laughs) I just hope no one's judging me. See, I just enjoy the moment sometimes of you not getting it. Right. The failure. Cool. Right. Cool, cool. Which leads us really well into our topic. Okay. Um, And that's your first clue. Have you ever laughed at someone, specifically like an annoying coworker, maybe falling out of their chair? Oh. Or yeah. have you ever seen a celebrity or someone you envy experience a failure and find a little bit of joy in that? 100%. Do you know what we're talking about yet? Mm-hmm. Is it Scheide Freude? It's Schadenfreude. Schaden, I see. I Schaden? fucked it up. You speak German. I don't. You I did? did it in high school. That was like 15 years ago. <laughs> Do not hold me to that I am standard. holding you to the expectation that you still speak German. Schadenfreude? Schadenfreude. Schadenfreude. Ja, darling. S-C-H-A-D-E-N-F-R-E-U-D-E. Wow. Schadenfreude. I've been waiting for you to do this. Have you really? Yes. Oh, I don't ever recall talking about it. Maybe you're the one who... No. Planted that seed. It's possible. So, I knows? whispered it into your ear when you were sleeping, so you never, <laughs> you never do. Um, 
I think I was actually inspired to do Schadenfreude when I saw a video of President, former President George W. Bush trying to open a door and the door being locked. <laughs> Sucker. <laughs> and then, like, I laughed. Like, yeah. laugh, laughed. Because he was, like, trying to escape and the door was locked. Sometimes they find you. They do. Spoiler alert. <laughs> Ooh. Okay, so Schadenfreude is the experience of pleasure, joy, or satisfaction that comes from learning of or witnessing the troubles, failures, or humiliation of another. God. Why? You know, it's so good. That's, that's, it. so for me, it's not just like seeing the funny videos of like, you know, animals falling down and like, you know, mm-hmm. all the like Americans mm-hmm. funniest home video shit. But it's also like, it, it's the experience when you're, post breakup and somebody has to win yeah that's also that like it's like embodied it's just a little bit of revenge schadenfreude yeah right that little it's it's winning it's absolutely it's that's exactly thing right yes and we're going to talk all about it so great oh a little asmr so it's a german word in the way that like it's the most german of the words Mm. um but there's no direct english translation so we just so it just it. sounds good, and you just mispronounce right. it exactly. In fact, I'm probably mispronouncing it right now. Schadenfreude became familiar for me when I saw Avenue Q. Or you introduced me to Avenue Q. Did you introduce no. me to Avenue Q? No, I've never seen it. You've, but you've heard of Avenue Q. Of course, I have. <laughs> okay, so for those of you out there who have never heard of Avenue Q, walk. Wait, no, run. run don't walk. Um, it is Muppets for Adults. They have hit classics like Schadenfreude, uh, Everyone's a Little Bit Racist, The Internet's Yikes. Really Great for Porn. <laughs> so there's a whole song. And I'm not going to sing it for you. Please. Um, no, but I was humming it like the whole drive over. Okay. Yeah. So a few of the words. Did you ever clap when a waitress falls and drops a tray of glasses? Ain't it fun to watch figure skaters falling on their asses? It really is. Don't you feel all warm and cozy watching people out in the rain? That schadenfreude, people taking pleasure in your pain. And then one character goes, schadenfreude, what's that? Some kind of word? The other one goes, yep, it's German for happiness at the misfortune of others. And then the other guy goes, happiness at the misfortune of others? That is German. Which Shit. <laughs> is just a great German joke. So Schaden means damage or harm, and Freude means joy. There's mm. also Freudenfreude. Shut up. Which we will be talking about very shortly. Not okay. today, but soon. Schadenfreude first came into English text in like 1852. Weird. Right? Like that's Vintage. so long ago. That's way before Avenue Q. Okay, so here's one experience I think many of us will be familiar with. There was an article that I read that examined, quote, Americans' feelings of schadenfreude versus sympathy towards President Trump during his COVID-19 diagnosis in 2020. How did you feel at this time in our country's history? Um, so if, I, if my memory is correct... Mm-hmm. This was shortly after the presidential debate, like the, or wait, wait, wait. It was in October of 2020. So it was between some of the debates and uh-huh. the actual yeah, election. Okay, perfect. Okay, yeah. Because that was like in between maybe the fly on Pence's head and stuff like that. Yeah. I didn't feel bad because I felt like he was just, you know, bre- like mouth breathing at people. <laughs> And, and that didn't make me feel sympathy for him. Yeah, that's fair. Um, I also felt a little bit of shot. Well, I, you didn't actually state that you felt shot in Florida, but I did. Like, just a little bit, though. Just a, a smidge. Just a smidge. The findings of this study published in the Journal of Social and Political Psychology revealed that Democrats expressed more shot in Florida and less sympathy towards the diagnosis compared to Republicans. Obviously. What a weird... What an interesting thing to... Like, that specific thing? Like, he has so many things, right? (laughs) Right. Why this one thing? 
Well, I feel like that's... I mean, Trump's going to be remembered for a lot of things. He is. However, his mismanagement of COVID and then getting COVID... Yes. It's like at the top of the list for me. True. Isn't it ironic? Don't, don't you think? think? It's like rain on your wedding day. It did rain on my wedding day. <laughs> it did. Day. <laughs> but only a little bit, right? Just a little. Yeah. Yeah. It worked out. Okay. Though, so the article goes on to say that it really wasn't that high. Like, in general, people expressing schadenfreude towards Trump. Most respondents reported more sympathy than schadenfreude. The researcher, whose last name is Peplak, mm. said she thought the reason that the experience of schadenfreude was so low is because of how seriously folks were taking the COVID-19 diagnosis. Yeah. Which is super interesting, given who was taking COVID-19 seriously you know true that's a whole other thing to unpack but it's just kind of an interesting little tangent so 43 percent of the folks in the survey indicated that they felt trump deserved his diagnosis oh yikes oh 16 percent expressed care for his overall well-being that's sweet and then five percent expressed malice who were like mm. Mm, shit weird so here's a, at that point in the pandemic when I was afraid to move and, I, like, we were very careful. Super careful. I would not have wished COVID on anyone. No. Did it, was it ironic? Was it a little, you know, you know, car- karma-y? Yes, it was. Would Alanis Morissette have put it in her song had she known? Probably. Probably, yeah. Yeah, I'm going to say yes. I want to say that's fact. Like, it's real, and it happened, and it gave people something to... Let's give them something to talk about. Yeah. is We're just going to do song lyrics the rest of this episode. <laughs> <laughs> um, actually, the full, like, article was really talking about how people were predicting um, voting outcomes based on Trump's COVID diagnosis. So the schadenfreude versus sympathy was like a subsect of the larger research study. Mm-hmm. Very cool though. Okay. So when and why do people experience schadenfreude? Um, so people might experience it in competition when someone's failure benefits another or all others. Rivalry, social comparison, justice, narcissism, and aggression. And we're going to dive deeper into a couple of these. Aggression-based schadenfreude primarily seems to involve group identity. So seeing the suffering of others come from the observer's feelings that the failure of one group is an improvement to their own group or validation to their own group. Okay, fuck that. Right. So I have an example for you. In... 2011 a study found or a study was using functional magnetic resonance imaging fmris and examined schadenfreude among boston red sox and new york yankees fans how fun great like love that love sports we're like grinding here like working our asses off and people are using fmris to study schadenfreude (laughs) with sports teams that sounds great go sports (laughs) and found that fans showed increased activation in brain areas correlated with self-reported pleasure when observing the rival team experience a negative outcome Mm -hmm. versus increased activation in uh, viewing their own team experience a negative outcome. Got it. Okay. That's much more mild than how I interpreted the original definition because that totally makes sense. Like sports... Yes. Yeah. Like, harmless things, yes. Racism, no. Right. So, it's going to be a range. So, and racism being kind of that higher end, higher level of schadenfreude. So, we're sitting in the closet, as you all know, and it's dark now, or getting darker. And I just see Allie's head, like, kind of bobbing around, but seeing no other part of you. You don't? No. No, like, it's because I don't have my, my computer up yet. Right, so... I'm here. I kind of feel like we're sitting at a campfire telling ghost stories. <laughs> I do, too, honestly. <laughs> okay. Rivalry-based is individualistic and related to interpersonal competition. There's a desire to stand out and perform better than your peers. 
So same idea as aggression-based, but more individual. The one that intrigues me the most is justice-based. So justice-based schadenfreude is seeing that behavior is immoral or bad and is being punished. Karma. Mm-hmm. A 2006 experiment about justice suggests that men, but not women, enjoyed seeing bad people suffer. The study was designed to measure empathy by watching the brain centers, which were stimulated when subjects observed seeing someone else experience physical pain. Researchers expected that the brain's empathy center or of subjects would show more stimulation when those seen as good got an electric shock than would occur if the shock was given to someone the subject had reason to consider bad, mm-hmm. which was the case. But for male subjects, the, bl- the brain's pleasure center also lit up when someone got a shock that the male thought was well-deserved. So apparently men experience the sense of justice serve schadenfreude and actually do like see or experience a sense of pleasure when someone is hurt if they feel like it's well-deserved. That's interesting because I get the justice served piece, but for me, it's never harm. Like it's like you drive by a speed trap and the asshole who's been tailgating you like it's pulled over yeah but never never harm right Right. you don't want them to get shocked no well and i'm wondering too like looking at socialization and men are socialized to not express their feelings in the same ways that women are Mm -hmm. able to do able encouraged i don't know exactly no i i mean i think honestly that that was really great because I feel like it is a gift, to be honest. Yeah. Yeah. A tool, and, if you will. Right. So women, do women experience more empathy towards other people? And are we more likely to, like, genuinely be upset if someone, even if they are bad, is, or we deem them as bad, is, like, experiencing this negative thing? I don't know. That's a podcast for another time. Hmm. Dark humor is one variation of schadenfreude that may have value. So shifting Mm -hmm. gears just a little bit to kind of the positive of schadenfreude and that it helps us deal with the stark reality of the human condition. One article stated, quote, our brain will choose pleasure over fear every time. Sometimes schadenfreude is just being glad you're not them or like the idea of it must suck to be you. And I think that that especially comes in when we recognize our own humanity in that, too. So it's not just, man, it must suck to be you, but also, shit sucks. (laughs) And I've got to find some kind of humor in it. Otherwise, this might actually be scary. That's so true. I think that's why I'm obsessed with Instagram reels. I just, I just fling my, I fling right through them. And I think it's like wanting to relate to them, but also wanting to know that like, other people feel it too other people feel it too and that also like it is an ultimate i mean there is a sense of winning at a certain point right like when you when whether you're looking at instagram reels or you're talking to people that you know like there is we're we're ultimately leveling ourselves up against others which sucks it does suck but if you don't do that then where does the joy feel because because the win is even in the smallest things, maybe the equivalency to joy? Yeah. Maybe? I don't know. I don't know. I. So we, we talk a little bit more about schadenfreude. Like, so some level of schadenfreude is just normal for the human condition. Okay. But Makes me feel better. Yeah. It, like, it's not all bad. It's What's important is understanding the root of it and then figuring out like what what to do with that so for example like your self-esteem and has a huge impact on how you experience schadenfreude but in kind of an interesting way so if you have lower self-esteem you tend to experience schadenfreude more frequently and with like more intensity which checks out when you don't feel good about yourself it's easy to slide into seeing others fail and to feel joy about that true But there's also a relationship with someone who has really, really high self-esteem, like an inflated ego, experiencing schadenfreude because they see another person fail 
and suddenly they don't feel like that person's a threat to their status or identity. Right. So, like, essentially, have a appropriate level of self-esteem and assume everyone's trying their best. And then schadenfreude doesn't get in the way of, like, your long-term perspective on people. Um, I actually have in my notes, moral of the story, D-bad. Because I don't think we've said D-bad <laughs> this season. We haven't said it. No. Which is weird. Don't right? be a dick. Don't be a dick. D-bad. Fun little acronym for you. Okay, so generally speaking, schadenfreude is seen as a negative emotion that may be relatively harmless, especially if it progresses quickly to empathy. And I think that that's where you and I get is like, you know, you you experience someone tailgating you or like swerving around traffic and then they get pulled over and there's like this little bit of pleasure in seeing them get pulled over because like they could hurt somebody and also they were being a jerk. But then you quickly can shift into, but shit, that ruins their day. Like, now you've got a ticket to deal with. So what's important is understanding why you feel what you feel and then being able to respond to it thoughtfully rather than impulsively. So experiencing schadenfreude is human, but being able to reflect on yourself and others and respond to these situations is what's most important. And you want to be able to focus on the connection rather than the alienation. So, as humans, we are wired to come together in times of conflict, and, like, we're innately pack animals. However, if we lean into this idea of being better than someone, that drives distance, which leads us to, like, America at large right now, right? Yikes. So, research shows that the groups you belong to and who you associate with shape your emotional reactions, which is not new. Like, we know that. Um, Nurture. Right. Nurture, baby. Exactly. Well, and what's that quote? Like, the um, you are a compilation of the five people you spend the most time with? Weird. Have you oh, heard that before? No. I love that. Huh. I forget where I heard or read that. But then I followed it up with reading about someone who was like, that's why I read biographies of really amazing people, is because if I'm going to be a compilation of people, I want to be a compilation of... God, that's good. So good. But if we're a combination of, like, the five people we spend the most time with, because nature versus nurture doesn't stop when you turn five, like, it continues for the rest of your life, how does this shape our emotional reactions? So if you're around people who experience frequent schadenfreude rather than empathy or sympathy or joy, how does that wire your brain? Which is just a weird thing to think about. Unclear. Yeah. You tell me. It's not great. Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) So, I mean, being able to, like, shoot the shit with your best friend and laugh and experience schadenfreude together is one thing. Like, that's not a big deal. Staying in a place where you frequently and deeply experience schadenfreude and never get to the place of experiencing empathy or, like, joy and happiness for other people isn't great. So, so we're going to the dark side. Right, exactly. So here were some questions that were raised in the article about Trump. And we don't have to, like, dig all the way into these, but I thought they were interesting questions. I wanted to bring them to you. Uh, does expressed schadenfreude expand our political party divides? Mm, oh, I would say yes. Yes, absolutely, right? I mean, yeah. Like, especially in the age of social media. Like you're saying, you know, being able to see and have things reinforced for you, like believing that you're the president isn't a good person. And then all of a sudden something negative happens to that person and then seeing it all over social media. Of course, that expands like party divide. Why wouldn't it? Or like you see those um, interviews, whether, you know, whichever way it's like. You see somebody get flustered in an interview, and it kind of like, yeah, know, confirms that what you know, whichever party. But it's it's about somebody getting embarrassed and not being able to answer questions properly, or right, or being proven wrong, or whatever it is. Yeah, and then do you feel empathy for that person, or do you feel like a sense of satisfaction and pleasure? There's an entitlement piece to it for Absolutely. sure. Absolutely. 
So number two, does schadenfreude based in correcting injustice motivate us to correct our own injustices? Which is a uh, huge fucking question. I don't think so. I don't think people think about things that deeply. No. I wish that they did, but like I feel like you and I are pretty reflective people. Um and even still, like often when experiencing Schadenfreude, I don't immediately go to think, oh well, you know, where have I messed up and what injustices in my own experience could I be correcting? No way. And that's assuming that people understand what they're experiencing, which is right. Shot a shot of blah, blah, blah. Right. And then the, that the opposite is empathy. And half the people who experience that don't even understand what empathy is or are incapable of experiencing it. Right. Or just don't lean into it or it becomes fearful for them. Like, there's so many pieces of that. So that's the um, Peplik, I think is the name of the uh, researcher. And those were the next two questions that she was going to be diving into for her next research project. Um. And then my own question is, how often do you feel like people genuinely reflect about these things? Never. <laughs> never, never. Never. It's but so it is sad. fun, though. Like, not going to lie. Like, seeing some... Like, whenever I see people run, mm-hmm. God, when they fall, gold. <laughs> Fucking because gold. Because we don't run? Because we don't run. And, like, you know, I mean, if uh, America's Funniest Home Videos would not have a market if it weren't for this. Right. You know what I mean? Like, seeing people get hit in the nuts with a baseball, (laughs) you know, there's, like, an entire market for that. Yeah, for sure. For sure. I think, honestly, I think that it, so it's a relatability thing, Mm -hmm. right? So it's, like, understanding, I I think it even relates to, like, that people, like, like, weird pimple popping shit right Mm -hmm. because it's not you experiencing that so it's like oh i feel better about myself Ooh, i hadn't thought about that for you know because i don't have a you know weird thing on my back or whatever well i wonder too so like the the falling down videos are funny to me but i don't feel like the sense of ooh. Got him. Got him. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. For me, it's like, damn, I would be falling over like that, too. Like, it's funny because it's relatable. Yeah. I I think that the... um, The justice piece. That's what stands out to me, too. Yeah, I agree. Like, it's one thing to just enjoy it because it's relatable or to enjoy it because, you know, you get it or it's objectively, like, it just objectively feels funny to you. But there's definitely the justice piece or the aggression piece that I think makes schadenfreude stand out in this really interesting way. Yeah. And there's a difference between feeling like justice is served and, fe- and feeling like schadenfreude, right? Like, you see something happen and it's like instant karma. You get it. You move on. Yeah. It's not the same feeling as like when somebody gets sentenced at a criminal hearing right 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 very different things but in like a micro dose sure maybe sure i don't know unclear are you not an expert in psychology you know i'm trying every day you i'm imperfect so i also love your bangs thank i wanted you so to tell much. you that i like i really like your bangs thank you i just cut them today you did cut you cut them yourself yes i did high five i need a haircut so um, I will be going back to my hair person at some point. I soon, love that. But for people who are not on Patreon, Kirian has a almost. Like I mean, a shag wolf. It's fair fair Yeah, I love it. Thank you, thank you. It's very sensual. I appreciate that. Yeah, nailing it. Thank you. I would give you a compliment about your appearance, but I can no longer see you at all. Well, I so, I do have a very bright <laughs> computer in front of me, and I there's can see you a black <laughs> hole behind it. So I feel very awkward. Like, my eyes are shifty, and I just kind of feel like I'm shouting into the literal void. Into the void. Into the woods. It feels very much like Elsa going in Frozen 2 and, like, looking for people. How I see <laughs> I, I can't even echo you i have no idea <laughs> i'm so sorry all right well let's take a break we're gonna grab a snack and then we will be back for 
What are do you want to tell what we're talking about before our break? We are talking about dollar princesses. The hell is that? You'll find out. <laughs> All right. All right, and we're back. And we're back. And today, guys, we're talking about dollar princesses. Is this like a Barbie on clearance? A Barbie on clearance? (laughs) (laughs) Dollar princess? Dollar princess Barbie? I I love that, though. No. (laughs) It is not. I am going to be talking about dollar princesses today. This is a concept that I was not familiar with. But it is absolutely fascinating and interesting. And it's a phenomenon that occurred in the 1800s. I love when you kick it old school with history. Absolutely vintage. So during this time, there were several families who increased in wealth. Right. So the wealth, right. the, the wealth of the Americas is, is rising. Yep. So is the use of the word schadenfreude. Sure, sure, sure. Link up there. <laughs> and obviously this was due to like new business adventures, uh, you know, but these families weren't necessarily higher on the social status. Not always. Like there's a, there's a, there's rules to this shit, right? These aren't like the Rockefellers and. No, no, no. <clears throat> so new money in certain areas was not. It was kind of frowned upon, right? They wanted, like, the old money that, you know, the true vintage shit. Um, So, there was a large group of rich, marriage-aged women who were not in high society standing, and so they couldn't really get the rich fellas in the area, so to speak. So, what's a girl to do? What would you do? Um, I would... Run. Run. I was going to say, find a stable boy named Wesley. Oh, as you wish. (laughs) Uh, Go through the forbidden swamp and then keep my fingers crossed that everything works out well. Right. And I don't get murdered by a six-fingered man. Or the R.U.S.'s. Or the R.U.S.'s. I don't think they exist. (laughs) So, what these girls needed was a title, right? That's what they were missing was a title. So they started looking overseas for the the title rich, but often financially poor men. It's giving Bridgerton season two. Correct, season one, two. All all of this is very Bridgerton. Bridgerton. It's giving Bridgerton both seasons of Bridgerton at this point. So they're looking for dukes and lords and things in like the 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 British royal family that are are equitable but only by name sure right because a lot of times these guys have they're like third cousins of somebody who's like super thrice important. removed yeah. correct right so they're not like financially wealthy but they have the title which is really really i mean for us that's like pretty fucking cool yeah yeah look at Meghan markle there we go i mean i don't know she's Meghan. legit right you don't know megan oh you don't know megan <laughs> <laughs> i know her now so, what's in it for the men? One may ask. <laughs> um, it's millions in dollars from a dowry. Is that millions in 1800s or like millions in today's money? It's the equ- I'm sure it's the equivalent, probably. Sure. I can't imagine they had millions in 1800s. What are they, a Rockefeller? <laughs> <laughs> no. So these women would find these dukes and earls by visiting London during the social season, (gasps) which I didn't even realize was a real thing. I thought it was just in Bridgerton, right? No, that was real. They were real. I know. I'm about to tell you all about it. That's so cool. So there were publications, including one called Title Americans, which would list the names of America's high, you know, status women... As well as high-born single British men. Oh, so it's kind of like a matchmaker, kind of like kind of sex matchmaker, matchmaker, mm-hmm. make me a match. <laughs> that vibe, exactly. Except do it through the newspaper. 
Through the newspaper. Yeah. They, this was pre-Craigslist. Yeah. So. It was basically Lady Whistletown, Whistledown, what was her name? Whistledown. Whistledown. Yeah. It was basically that, but slightly different. It was wild. I'm pretty sure. <laughs> so they would read these publications and then show up to these parties kind of like knowing like who was going to kind of be there during the social season. So it was kind of like online dating, but not. Right. Except for the fact that, they, that there weren't photos in these things. It was just like a description of like your age and how rich your parents ASL, were. ASL, age, sex, location. Exactly. Remember that from AOL? <laughs> I don't. What? What were you? Were you having inappropriate relations with folks online, Karen? No, sex is a male or female. <laughs> sure, sure, sure. Sure, sure, sure. <laughs> That's my story. Cindy, wash your daughter. Not wash. Wash. I'm 90% sure she turned this off the moment you said nipple piercings. I don't think I don't think she stuck with us for this one. That's funny. So in 1895 alone, nine British noblemen, including a duke, an earl, and three barons, married American women in one year. What a steal. So let's talk about the social season. Tell me everything. So the social season was popular in the 18th and the 19th century, and it refers to an annual period of spring and summer where it's customary for members of the social elite of British society to hold balls, dinner parties, and charity events. Sign me up. I feel like that was my past life. I feel like that's our destiny. We went to one formal event where we saw Dolly. We've talked about it on the pod oh, already. Yeah. But, like, when's the next time we plan on going to one, right? I mean, we could throw one. Like, we could... We could throw one. Should that be my housewarming party? Formal uh, attire? If you could, that would be great. I have several dresses that need to be worn at least one to two more times. So I'll see what I can do. I'll once a year, get all your friends together and throw the fanciest ball that you can. Okay. Bring you it too. back. I will, I'll do that, too. Samesies. They'll be all the same friends. They will be. (laughs) They will be. They'll be like one degree moved from the same group of people. Mm -hmm. So the season starts with the Chantelham Festival, which is held in March. And it ends officially at the end uh, of September with the the Goodwood Festival. Dirty. Dirty. Crusty. Title of your sex tape. Ooh, my sex tape? It's from like Parks and Rec (laughs) or something. (laughs) Um, so I don't think many people stayed the entire time because like March through September is like a real like where else you, like you got to be somewhere else I'm sure between sure. those months right you're traveling you're vacationing yeah so it's also the months that people aren't experiencing seasonal depression so I just feel like it's naturally a good time to socialize that's a really good point because come but everyone smells terrible it's like the 1800s I mean a little, a little essential stink. oils a little patchouli a little patchouli What's the, uh, you know, people's pheromones play oh. a big role in things, right? See, I feel like pheromones are a myth because we're just so gross. See, I think that people's pheromones, if they're attractive to you, aren't as bad. And if they are not, it's schadenfreude. It's schadenfreude. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my goodness. So many popular or many people consider the season to end around the summer, like June or July. So it goes until September, but like most people are just hanging out through the end of like June or July. I mean, that's a long time to be Either socializing. Way, it's you got an introvert. Oh, 100. I'm exhausted just thinking about it. In fact, I have that written in my notes. <laughs> so these people are all in London or in like the large main cities in in England. Mm-hmm. Um, but not everybody lives in London at this time. So it was very common for folks to travel from their country homes into the city for social season each year. So that's that's six months out of the year. That's not like a that, that that's a trek. Who are you finding to watch your pets? Like there during are this no time. Pe- well, you have people that work for you, I That's would fair. assume. I'd, unclear. But the most ex- 
exclusive events were held in people's private homes by leading members of the aristocracy. You may run into parliament members at these parties. Um, the two houses, I said the two horses of parliament, but I meant the two houses of parliament mm-hmm. were almost all, you know, participants in the season. Uh, but it wasn't just all about the politics. These parties are where you bring your, you know, your marriage age children to be launched into society. Like a rocket. Like a fucking rocket. Launch them. Like a rocket. <laughs> now, I know what you're wondering. What would you wear during social season? How did you know I was already, like, sitting over here <laughs> planning my outfit? Quote, at Royal Ascot, which is a racetrack, uh, for example, hats and com- or hats are compulsory in most enclosures. And to be admitted to the royal enclosure for the first time, one must either be a guest of a member or be sponsored for membership by two members who have attended for at least six years as a member. So there's like some hierarchical Jeez. shit. I know. Seems a little extreme. So this continues to maintain a social exclusive character for the royal enclosure, which is like, you know, if you think about it, it sounds exactly what it like it is. It's like a the, the VIP area, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. So it's gentlemen exclusive. are required to wear either black or gray morning dresses, which I don't know what that is, and I didn't look it up, with a waistcoat and a top hat. A morning as in like the sun rises or morning as in like someone's dead. Shit sad, yeah. I think, uh, like, in the morning. Okay. But uh, unclear. But I would think that. Okay. Because it's a happy time. Sure. A gentleman must remove his top hat within a restaurant, a private box, a private club, or that facility's terrace, balcony, or garden. Still true. Fellows, remove your top hats. True. Just remove them and take them off in the fashion in which you put it down in a goodwill to donate. <laughs> right? Just move it all the way on over. Hats may also be removed within an enclosed ex- external seating area within the royal enclosure garden. Ladies must not show bare midriffs or shoulders and must wear hats. No crop top, drop tops. No drop tops. Carry in. You also have to wear a hat, okay? Hats just don't look good on me. No? Uh-uh. I've never... I don't, I don't, I I don't think it. you've ever seen me in a hat because I don't wear hats. I have beanies over there because it's where my closet. Those are the three beanies I own. Is this the beanie that... I thought we lost in D.C.? I, that's a replacement. It's a replacement, so we did actually we lose did it We did lose that. I lost that in the, in the cab. Damn. I, I actually saw this and wanted to comment on it earlier and then got distracted by yeah. the podcast. There she is. This I is went, a Rocky Horror beanie, yes, by the way. Yes, it has the lips, the Rocky Horror lips on it. Uh, but I went, I had an identical hat to it, went up to visit CA, or we went up together. We went up together and I wore it. So I have worn at least one beanie. Let Good, the record there we go. show. And then you lost it in the cab. Yep. Not to point fingers, but it, but it was you that you lost <laughs> it. was it. me for sure. Yeah, that was me. <laughs> no, that's a replacement. Well, I'm glad you found a replacement. Well, we ordered them for the cast. I'm glad you ordered a replacement. So I was responsible for distributing them, and I have an extra. Excellent. Yeah, it's one of a kind, except for there's more than one. But. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So... In the Queen Anne enclosure, formerly known as the Grandstand, gentlemen are required to wear long suits with ties and ladies must wear a hat. The hat is a big requirement for the ladies. I hear. At Henley Royal Regatta and the Stewart's enclosure, gentlemen, or in the Stewart's enclosure, gentlemen must wear a long jacket and tie. Rowing club colors on a blazer or cap are encouraged. As in wearing of like bo- like think of like the like the preppy khaki boat yeah, yeah, yeah. shoes like all that shit. A lady skirt hem must reach below the knees, and is checked before entry by the stewards officials. They were wearing 
dresses that were above the ankle at this point? That this is according to my notes that I wrote four weeks ago. That's what this is saying. <laughs> <laughs> that is what this is saying. Both ladies and gentlemen will be turned away if they fail to comply with the dress code. Regardless of their prestige in rowing or elsewhere, hats are encouraged but not required for ladies. When a student protested being denied entry into the steward's enclosure for failing to meet the dress code, saying she had worn the dress, quote, in the royal enclosure at Ascot and nobody said anything, a spokesman defended the dress code saying, quote, <laughs> I think this, <laughs> quote, the intention is to maintain the atmosphere of the English garden party of the Edwardian period by wearing a more traditional dress, end quote. So they're trying to maintain the old-timey look, although it is a little bit more modern these mm -hmm, days. Mm -hmm. So that's a combination of both old and new concepts. Like a make England great again? Oh, Jesus. <laughs> Kill me now. Sorry, we all love the Edwardian period. So, at polo matches, it is usual for gentlemen to wear a blazer and always, you know, white trousers. Ladies should wear, you know, flat shoes as traditional for, like, treading the divots. That's when this all started in the 1800s. If you know, if you've ever watched Pretty Woman, you know what treading the right. divots are. I was actually about to make a Pretty Woman Would you like reference. to explain the concept? Yeah, so you take a break from polo, and then the people go out and put the divots back, like the, the pieces of dirt and grass that were kicked up from the stick, <laughs> and they put <laughs> them the back club in. the club thing? The club thing that you use to hit the thing. Mm -hmm. um, and those are the technical terms. Yeah, you yeah. heard it here first. And then you stomp the divots. And then you stomp the divots. Amen. And then the guy from Jurassic Park hits on you. Right. Offended. And then you want to leave. Um, mm -hmm. But you have a beautiful brown polka dot dress on. Like, the only person in the world who can pull off a brown polka dot dress. Have I you really, ever thought about that? No, I've never thought about it, but I'm thinking about it now. I mean, I don't know anyone else who can pull off a brown polka dot dress. No. Other than Julia Roberts, who can pull off literally anything. And we talked about her, was it last episode? It was last episode. A couple episode. episodes ago? Yep. Unclear. But the next section of my notes is from an Ancestry.com article. Shout out to you, Carrie Ann. I love Ancestry. <laughs> titled, How American Dollar Princesses Changed British Nobility. So we're going to talk about the different couples, okay, that were kind of oh. matched up through this. Are you feeling like Lady Whistledown? A little bit. <laughs> A little bit. So Jenny Jerome and Lord Randolph Churchill is who we're going to start with. Born in Brooklyn in 1845, Jenny Jerome was one of the earliest dollar princesses. Wait, is this Jenny from the block? I don't think so. But it could be. The but it's OG. like a similar similar mm -hmm. vibe. She used to have a little, but now she has a lot, except for it's the opposite. <laughs> <laughs> so as a mother, she was also one of the most influential women. So Leonard Jerome... Jenny's father was a flamboyant stock trader mm. Mm. and womanizer. Hey, hey. Opposite ends of the spectrum there. I know. Flamboyant right? womanizer. <laughs> <laughs> is he gay or is he not, folks? <laughs> you know, they, yeah, you know, unclear. So her mother endured rumors that she had Iroquois ancestry. So there was some racial, you know, a little bit of racism sprinkled in there. Um, old money society in New York did not consider either to be fit company. Oh. Mm-hmm. So traveling through England, however, Jenny met Lord Randolph Churchill, the younger son of the seventh Duke of Marlborough. 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 Which is the hardest <laughs> word to say in the English language. They fell madly in love. And within three days of their initial meeting, Jenny and Lord Randolph announced their plans to marry. A wedding solved each of their problems. Jenny's family rose in respectability, while Jenny's dowry of 50,000 pounds vastly supplemented Lord Randolph's meager allowance as the younger son of a nobleman. Mm. Jenny's father was also provided her... Jenny's father also provided her with a thousand pound annual salary or annual allowance. 
A thousand pounds annually? Yeah. Mm. Doesn't really measure up to the $50,000 dowry. No. No. It leaves a little... Maybe you can get your toes done, though. That's, like, enough to, like, get a pedicure <laughs> once a month, right? Yeah, especially with inflation these days. Unclear. But Jenny and Randolph wed in April of 1874. Seven and a half months later, Jenny gave birth to Winston, the future prime minister of the United Kingdom, <gasps> who would lead the country what? during its darkest hours of World War II. The Unsur Winston Churchill. The Winston Oh my goodness. Unsurprisingly, for such an er, or for such an arrangement, their marriage was marked by several affairs. Jenny allegedly enjoyed an affair with Edward, the Prince of Wales, who had earlier supported her marriage to Lord Randolph over objections from the traditional-minded nobility. For years, it was said that Lord Randolph died of syphilis, contracted by from from one of his many extramarital encounters. Mm. Schadenfreude. <laughs> Schadenfreude. <laughs> 19 years after Jenny's marriage to Lord Randolph, his nephew Charles Spencer Churchill, the ninth Duke of Marlborough, married the wealthiest and perhaps most famous dollar princess, Consuelo Vanderbilt, great granddaughter of the railroad tycoon Cornelius Vanderbilt. <gasps> like Jenny. Uh, Jeromis, I forget how I pronounced her name, and I forgot it because of brain, my brain. But his Wall Street money, Vanderbilt's relatively new railroad fortune, seemed like a great match, sure. right? To both New York high society and British aristocrats. But Consuelo's wealth and her mother's ruthless ambition to land a noble son-in-law opened many doors in the United Kingdom. Consuelo, at first, had, not, had no interest in marrying the Duke. She was, in fact, already engaged to a man she loved. What's a girl to do? Drama. What's a dinosaur to do when there's kids on the ice? <laughs> what? What is that from? From Rugrats. Oh. But Consuelo's mother threatened to kill herself. Okay. Oh, shit. So Consuelo agreed to the transatlantic union her mother had planned. It's a little manipulative. It is. Super gaslighty, right? Yeah. Not great. Not great. Don't do that. On November 6th, 1895, Consuelo married Charles in St. Thomas Episcopal Church in New York's Fifth Avenue. In her hand, she clutched orchids grown in the greenhouse of the Blenheim Palace the ancestral home of the Duke of Marlborough, and an estate second only to the Buckingham Palace. So, Shit. Pretty important. Yeah. I don't know anyone who's clutched orchids on their wedding day. Oh. I feel like orchids are just such an expensive flower. They're mm -hmm. rare. They're hard to grow. They are hard to grow. They're really hard to grow. Yeah. We're attempting to keep one alive right now. The one ice cube thing, I hear it doesn't work. No, we, uh, I put three ice cubes in there, like, yesterday. Three? Three. I'm trying my best. Well, don't water it for a very long time. Thank you. That's good advice. You're welcome. Okay. So, we're talking about the Duke of Marlborough. So, in his hands, figuratively speaking, was a marriage settlement signed by Consuela's father that promised the Duke 2.5 million <gasps> in shares of, of Vanderbilt's stock and $100,000 a year to both newlyweds. Who could turn that down? No one. A husband or a wife and $100,000 a year apiece? Shit. In the 1800s? It's a lot. It's a lot. It's a lot. Um, every it's time we now. say Vanderbilt, I think of Legally Blonde and Warner wanting to marry a Vanderbilt. Mm -hmm. um, Warner would have, like, absolutely lost his mind at this opportunity. He really would have. I wonder if he knew this story. Here somewhere. Yeah, possible. I don't think he's that smart, but maybe. <laughs> um, so their marriage, however, was even unhappier than Jenny and Lord Randolph's. On their honeymoon, Charles is said to have told Consuelo about his English mistress and then set about spending her dowry on restoring his family seat at Ble Bleheim Palace. 
Despite the renovations, Consuelo complained about his drafts and lack of indoor plumbing, which, you know, if, if you got a drafty, if you got a drafty house. If you're house, renovating. You know, fucking do it right. Yeah. Okay. And it's a 65 mile thing in London. Sure. And, and so, you know, it, it would lead to a lonely life. You know, you're living at opposite ends of a, of a very big house. Um, but she and the Duke separated in 1906 and ended up divorcing in 1921. That was the, oh, I, 1921. Never mind. 21. 21. So Francis Work and James Burke Roche, the third baron, is who we'll be talking about next. Born in 1857 and raised in the wealthy enclave of Newport, Rhode Island, Francis, or Fanny, Work, Work, eh, <laughs> was the daughter of self-made millionaire Frank Work, which is just like fucking work. Frank that's, Work. That's badass. Work, work. Twerk, work, twerk. work, 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 work. <laughs> um, in 1878, Fanny met an Anglo-Irish nobleman, James Burke Roche, uh, who would become the third Baron Fermini. That's, huh. how, that's how we're going to pronounce it. Fanny married him in September of 1880 over her father's objections. <gasps> mm -hmm. Plot twist. Plot shaman. By the mid-1885, the couple had two daughters and twin boys. So they're it's building their family. During their marriage, however, Fanny suffered from her husband's large spending and abandonment. So he was just spending all, all that money and he abandoned her. Damn. She was feeling a little lonely. And by 1891, Frank Work, Frank Work agreed to pay off James's debts if he agreed to divorce Fanny and let her have custody of their sons. It's messy. What about the daughters? Oh, what about the daughters? What about the daughters? <laughs> I don't know. Dude, that sucks. Frank Work so detested his former British re uh, relations that he would later stipulate in his will, that none of his family members could visit British again. Britain again. Mm. I'm struggling here. Sounds like a, a curse upon you, a curse upon your family, mm. a curse upon your cow. <laughs> right. His instructions, however, were ignored, and Fanny's elder son, Edmund Maurice Roche, returned to England to become the fourth Baron Fermany in 1920. In 1936, Edmund fathered Francis Ruth Roche, who in turn gave birth to Diana Spencer. In 1981, Diana married England's Prince Charles and became the famous worldwide <gasps> Princess, Princess Diana. Diana? Princess Diana. Oh Princess my gosh. Diana. That was a plot twist my heart was not prepared for. Shamala. Through the line of her father, the eighth Earl Spencer was the sixth cousin once removed of Winston Churchill. The Earl Spencer had descended from the younger brother, the third Duke of Marlborough. Through Princess Diana's material or maternal connection to the fam to the Works family, she, her two sons, Prince William and Harry, mm -hmm. you might be familiar. I've heard of them, yeah. And William's two daughters, Prince George and Prince Ch Charlotte, are related to eight American presidents and several other famous Americans, including Ralph Waldo Emerson, Louisa May Alcott, Humphrey Bogart, John Piermont Morgan, and General George S. Patton, and Orals Wells. Damn, that's a hell of a family tree. Yeah, that's, that's, I mean, this is an Ancestry.com sure. article for a reason, right? Right. But that's a hell of a family tree. I know, I know. Can you imagine, like, claiming... So, you know, like, in first or second grade, when they ask you to do your family tree, mm -hmm. just imagine being like, I'm related to Princess Diana and Orson Welles and... Yeah, that's impressive. Louisa May Alcott. Yeah. And a couple of presidents. Yeah. Like, you're going to get an A, <laughs> and everyone's going to hate you. And everyone's going to want a donation from your family. Right. All right, I've got one more. So this is Mary Leader and George Curson, the first Marquis Curson of Kiss of Keldeston and the fifth Baron Scardale. Write that on a fortune cookie. I do. <laughs> 
So not all, all dollar princesses suffered through unhappy marriages to, you know, men Shitty that were good for them. Yeah. Yeah. So Mary Leader, for example, shared both love and English rule of India with her husband. Mary was born in, Char in Chicago, I said Charlotte, but I'm in Chicago, in 1870 to a department store um, manager worth, or not manager, but like owner, worth $220 million. Damn. Damn. Visiting England in 1890, Mary had a chance to meet with the Prince of Wales, who found her charming and introduced her to London society. Hmm. In 1895, Mary wed 36-year-old George Curson, an up-and-coming political star and son of the fourth Baron of Scarsdale. None of that means anything to me. but It doesn't mean much to me either. However, it's interesting. Yeah, but you're a fourth of a something. Yeah, for So sure. that's, you know, something. Yeah. <laughs> um, a devoted wife, Mary Rose with George during his political career. And in 1898, George was named the first Marquis Curson of Clindeston. Okay. And Visery, Visery of India. The head of British government in colonial India. That's a huge fucking deal. Wow. Mary joined her husband there. Um, and, you know, and she was then kind of like the, not the queen of India by any means, but the, the equivalent of his status because they were together, right? Um, she held the highest official title of an American woman up to that point, which is sad. <laughs> um, <laughs> Mary, however, became sick. And she died in India in July oh. of 1906. Their loving relationship is reportedly the inspiration of the Earl of Granton, Grantham and his wife Cora in Downton Abbey. Oh, okay. Somebody's screaming at me because I'm pronounced that wrong. I'm so sorry. Love Downton Abbey, though. Mm -hmm. uh, with the coronation of King George V in 1911, royal and public sentiment began to turn against the dollar princesses. The new king uh, disapproved of such unions, and the transatlantic matches began to slow. Nevertheless, some other people, you know, uh, occasionally people would kind of dabble, dabble in the dark arts. Um, but for the most part, it, it became less of a cultural phenomenon and less of like a, you know, a must-do or a to-do. Right. And um, But it definitely had its place in history. Wow. And that's the dollar princesses. Fascinating. I am so intrigued. And now I really want to go watch Bridgerton all over again. And Downton Abbey. And potentially Downton Abbey, but that's a much larger commitment. That's true. Is it Vicroy? The word you were trying to struggle to pronounce. Maybe. Vicroy? Oh, okay. Great. Um, no, that was my only... I got stuck on that thought of how do you pronounce that word? Maybe. I think about Vikram from Friends, who Phoebe's Ross makes up the name of the guy she's supposed to have been. Right, right. And then I think about Victor Crumb from Harry Potter. Mm, what a tangle web we weave. Everything but I really don't. back to Harry Potter. I, sometimes I write my notes so far in advance that there's no chance of me remembering any pronunciations. And then I also, surprisingly, I have a podcast, but I'm also terrified of reading out loud. <laughs> 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 this is really just a combination of terrifying things I for us. I know. I don't like to hear myself talk. You don't like to read out loud. <laughs> what are we doing? <laughs> Why do we have a podcast? I don't know. <laughs> but it's been such a fun season. We've had a lot of people who have been interested in the cocktail recipes, which has been great. We've been mailing yeah, out been some so of those. Cool. Um, but before we get into all of that stuff, let's talk about intersections. Oh, Yeah um intersections so i'm assuming there was some schadenfreude when the wealthy americans went over and then may have had unhappy marriages or it's, it's just about finding the person right there's got to be shod, shod, blah, 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 when you're at the party and yeah. you're seeing you're the yep, one yep, chosen yep. right and then there's you know or you're seeing somebody get rejected by the one that you want it's a, it's, it's just like dating 101 right Dating is hard for everyone, and it sucks. Mm -hmm. And we could experience schadenfreude, or we could experience empathy. Mm. And that's a lovely note to end on. I love that. 
Thank you so much. And thank you so much. <laughs> thank you for recording in my closet on a Tuesday night. I'm really enjoying looking at your clothes. I love all the prints. Oh, thank you. You have such a colorful, like, array of nice clothes. Thank you. Well, you see that one right there? You gave that one to me. I did give that one to you. And Cindy gave that one to me to give to you. Oh, thanks, Cindy. Mm-hmm. Also, thanks for the clothes you gave to me as you were cleaning out your closet before <laughs> you, you moved. You are welcome. Thanks to you and your boo-boo for taking them. Anytime. Literally. I got you. Okay. All right. Well, thank you guys. <laughs> <laughs> How do we end? It's Tuesday. It's late. We love you guys so much. If you haven't given us a five-star rating on on, what is it? Google. Apple. 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 What is happening? Apple Podcasts. Please Ooh. do so. Yeah. I was about to take that off your plate. I was like, go, let me. Go, go, go. Please. Um, you can find us on social media. I don't ever do this part. This is do exciting. It. You can find us on social media, on Instagram, at pod without an odd. Uh, we still have an email. I don't know that anyone's used it in quite some time, but feel free to email us. Pod without an odd at gmail.com. Uh, we're on Facebook, but no one else seems to be. We're not on Facebook anymore. We're not on Facebook. Mm-hmm. Never mind. We're not on Facebook. <laughs> this is why you do this part. You're nailing it. Thank you so much. Um, but yeah, check in with us. We'd love to hear from you. And uh, we look forward to talking to you again next week. That's right. And if you support us, blink twice. And if you're out there, keep listening. Thank you for listening to Podcast Without an Audience. Find us on social media at Pod Without an Odd. You can find us on Instagram or Facebook. Or find us on the web at podcastwithoutanaudience.com. Shoot us an email at podwithoutanaud at gmail.com. Our cover art is created by an actual angel, Ashley Acevedo. Our music is by Zach Smith and Ted Oliver. Editing by Jacob Beeson. We hope you enjoyed today's episode and all of our nerdy content. Please consider leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to us today. Oh, and check out our Patreon for exclusive content and our pasta recipe. Again, thanks, and keep listening.